If you ever watch a debate from an atheist and you ask them, where does morality come from? You're gonna get a runaround. They're gonna tell you about, well, man, is, you know, he's the most advanced, you know, we evolved higher than the other species, blah, blah, blah. And eventually you end up with something like, well, it depends on what society thinks in any given time. Well, there's a problem with that. Society thinks a lot of things a lot of time. Society used to sell black people in this country, right? You have a vote. You had a, back in 1850, you have a vote, you get majority of people say slavery, fine, right? Was it fine? Of course not. Are we more enlightened today? No. We've always known by nature what is proper. Sinning is going against what you already know to be wrong. That's what sinning is. That's why there is no excuse, the Apostle Paul says to anybody, when God comes to judge, nobody's gonna be able to say, well, I didn't know, or I, I, you know what people are gonna say? I should've, I could've, I didn't. You have no excuse, right? Because we are ethical creatures. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for September 2nd, 2018. Today, Brother Omar brings us part three of his message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of Man. Brother Omar reminds us that God made us all as humans in his own image. To be workers, to have dominion, also to be ethical and to discern what is right or wrong and to be governed by God's law. Now, Brother Omar says that when we step outside of these boundaries, we live for our own self-glory and we decide what is right or wrong based on our own flawed ideas, which ends in sin. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's word here on Followers of the Way. We are in our ever going, as Carlos pointed out to me, series on statement of faith, our statement of faith. So we're talking about the doctrine of man. This is our third sermon on the doctrine of man. And uh, so far, we talked a little bit about some of the observations in the text in Genesis. Um, if you read the account of creation, we talked about how man was created in the image of God and the implications of that being that if man is created in the image of God, that means that man has value, right? intrinsic value. And also that human life has sanctity in and of itself. So also another implication if man is created and all men are created in the image of God is that all men are equal since they're all created in the image of God and descendants of Adam. So all of us can be tracked down to the same ancestors, which is Adam and Eve. So all of us are created in God's image. We're all equal. We all have equal value. Now we talked a little bit about the political implications of this that affect us even onto our day. If man is created in the image of God, that means that his value is intrinsic and natural. It's not something that has to do with external things. For example, the human view is that people that have maybe not have proper mental capacity may be of less value. And we talk about in the past how certain things were done to people. Like there was not only abortion, why we talked about how in Iceland they've eliminated Down syndrome. Not because they cured it, it's because now they can do a test and if the baby shows that it's gonna have Down syndrome, they just abort the baby, right? That's the humanistic view. Humans look at people based on external aspects and they make a judgment on the value of that person 
We don't do that because our word says, God's word says, that men are created in the image of God, all men, whether they're born or unborn, and therefore they have value. Human life has value that is intrinsic. So it is also upon this basis that Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, if you only love, you know, your friends, then what good is that? He says, love your enemies. Why should you love your enemies? Because they're created in the image of God in spite of how they act and what they do. Their life is created in God's image. Now, that does not mean that men are not to be punished for crimes. You have somebody who's a Muslim terrorist, he should be punished for the crime. But that doesn't mean that Arabs are less valuable people than us. They're created in God's image. They just happen to be at the other part of the world. So those are some of the political implications that that doctrine has in our day. We also spoke about how men are to have dominion over creation. Right? God gave them dominion. There's a dominion mandate to lord over creation. Now, notice that the lording over is over creation, not other men. There is no lording over other men. There is no dominion over other men. But we are to have dominion over this planet and this creation. And so, we also saw that man was put to work. The work was God's gift on creation to man. He gives him a garden and he says, you need to work it and you need to keep it. So work, last time we spoke about, is God's gift to us, productivity. We are to be a productive people. So we're created in God's image to have dominion and to be productive. That's humanity. That's human beings. So things like entrepreneurship, productivity, Work are part of your essence as a human being. You're meant to be a worker and to be productive. An entrepreneur, for example, is somebody who undertakes, he plans, he accomplishes a productive endeavor. That's what you're supposed to do, all right, as a human being and as a Christian. We also talk about how God is also a worker. God had a plan, right, called creation. He carries it out. He brings resources. He plans it and he brings it about. God is an entrepreneur. Right? He worked during creation and is working still. Jesus said he is the CEO of this enterprise. He's currently overseeing some business expansion. So he's reaching new markets every day and he's putting his people to work. Right? So that's God and that's who are we supposed to be. And these are some of the observations about the text in Genesis that talks about the creation of man. Um, so today I want to speak to you about. Another observation, and to do that, we got to go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We're reading more of the account of creation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, after God puts the man in the garden and tells him to work it, he gives the man certain instructions. So he says to him, 
You shall eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat, for when you do, you will die. So, third observation, man is an ethical being. Man is an ethical being. Now, what do we mean by ethical? What is ethics? Okay. Now, this is just from the dictionary. The definition of ethics is moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the conducting of an activity. A branch of knowledge that deals with moral principles. That's ethics. Here's Wikipedia. Ethics or moral philosophy is a branch of philosophy that involves systematizing, defending, or recommending concepts of right and wrong conduct. So from the beginning, God makes man, and he tells him, there's some things that you can do, but there's another thing you cannot do. In other words, there is a right thing, and there is a wrong thing. This is ethics, right or wrong. And then on top of that, he gives him a sanction. He gives him a penalty. Okay? Now a sanction, I got another definition, because I'm fancy. There you go. Sanction is a threatened penalty for disobeying a law or rule and a range of actions aimed at deterring insider abuse. A consideration operating to enforce obedience to any rule of conduct. In other words, a sanction is what takes something from being a suggestion or a recommendation into being a law. If God tells Adam, listen, I think that you should eat of all these trees but I suggest that you leave this one alone, right? Well, Adam couldn't be, okay, well, thanks for that. I'll take that into consideration. That's a suggestion, okay? What made this a law is the fact that it was followed by what? A penalty. You do this, you die. That's a law, okay? So, Man is an ethical creature who is supposed to be governed by law or a rule of duty from the beginning. Why? Because man is created in the image of God and God is law. Now I know you're good evangelicals and you're not used to hearing that God is law, right? God is love. That's what God is. God is love, right? So if God is love, he's not law, right? Well, in other words, what people try to say sometimes is that they, they make this dichotomy between law, right? Like, like right and wrong and penalties and love as if they're two different things or as if they're opposite each other. And they're not. Let me give you a quote. Here's my good friend, Mr. Finney. Mr. Finney, Charles Finney, has an objection about this, and he gives an answer. The objection is, it is alleged that love is so much better than law, that where love reigns in the heart, law can be dispensed with. In other words, if you have love in your heart, you no longer need law, right? Here's his answer. He says this, this supposes that if there is only love, there need be no rule of duty. No revelation directing love in its efforts to secure the end upon which it terminates, but this is impossible. Translate that to American. Love, in order to make any sense, 
must have an objective and something that is ruling it to get to the objective, okay? Something is governing love. So he goes on to say this. This objection overlooks the fact that law is, in all words, the rule of duty. That legal sanctions or penalties make up an indispensable part of that circle of motives that are suited to the nation, relation, and government of moral beings. Translating into American. What he is saying is like, and only for love to be differentiated from anything else, it must be set aside by some sort of system of what it is and what it's not. Otherwise, we won't even know what it is. <laughs> so he goes on to say, here's the end of it, the law requires love and nothing is law, either human or divine, that is inconsistent with universal benevolence. And to suppose that love is better than law is to suppose that love needs no direction from superior wisdom. In order for love to be love, it must be guided by something that denotes what is right or what is wrong. Otherwise, it's just sentimentality. It's just emotion. So love, in order to be love, it has to be conducted by some sort of superior motive or superior wisdom or superior law. God is love because God is law. He has to be because there must be a pattern of willing that is right and proper. Otherwise, we would not be able to distinguish it from that which is lesser. So, what does that mean that God is law? Here's Finney again. God is a moral agent, the self-existent and supreme, and is therefore himself as ruler of all, subject to, and observant of moral law in all of his conduct. Translation. God is a moral being. He's a moral agent, and he is a ruler of all, and as such, he is subject to moral law the same way that he also oversees it. What does that mean? What is moral law? What are you talking about, Mr. Finney? Here's what he says. His own infinite intelligence must affirm that a certain course of willing is suitable, fit, and right in him. This idea or affirmation is law to him, and to this his will must be conformed or he is not good. What he's saying is simply this. God within himself knows that it's a right way of being. There's a right way of being, which is the way that he is. There's nobody above him. Therefore, the way that God is, the way that he wills, the way that he acts, the way that he is as a being is the best way that, a, that any being could be. He's the greatest thing in the universe. So therefore, God understands that this way of willing, this way that he is, is the superior and best way, and anything lesser than that would be wrong, would be the opposite. He understands that in his mind. If you look at the law as it's given to us by Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples, all of the law that God gave you is summarized into two. Two commandments. Remember those? Love the Lord your God, or your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love what? your neighbor as yourself. Why is that the summary of all law? Because that's who God is. God, the Father, right? God the Father understands that the way that he is as a being is the best way. He promotes that. But God the Father loves God the Son as he loves himself. 
Got the Son, does the same thing. Got the Spirit, does the same thing. Within this being called the Trinity, you have constantly, at all times, a God that is promoting his own well-being and the well-being of his neighbor as himself. Because he's what? He's a Trinitarian God. If God was only one person, this would be impossible until he created somebody. But because God is a Trinity, this happens all the time. God is constantly understanding there is a particular pattern of being or willing that is proper and fit, and his mind imposes that upon himself. Because if he were to turn and do something opposite, then he would be quote-unquote sinning, which he never would do. Because he's not going to choose the lesser. He's always going to be who he is. So that is moral law. That is the origin of right and wrong. God understanding that the way he is is right and the opposite being wrong. That idea is moral law. So Finney is saying that moral law originates in God himself. So this moral law, he says, a law founded in the eternal and existent nature of God, this law does and must demand benevolence in God. Benevolence is good willing. God's intelligence must affirm that he ought to will good for his own value it must affirm his obligation to choose the highest possible good as the great end of his being. God is not going to commit suicide or do anything that is detrimental to himself. He's always going to do the good. That's why when you read your Bible, the Bible is always saying, you know, and I'll do this for my own glory. Or for the sake of my great name, I shall do this. And you think that's selfish. <laughs> it's not. God is the sustainer of all things, and he's the greatest being, the most beautiful, complex being in the universe. When God does things for his glory, and he is sustaining everything, he's moving up everything that he's sustaining along with him. So you want to promote the well-being of a baby in the womb? You promote the well-being of the mother. So when God is promoting his own glory, it's not selfish. Wherever God's name and God's glory is being promoted, and whenever his name is glorified, that place is being lifted right along with his name. This is, this is the best trickle-down economics you can think of. Because God is the greatest being in the universe, and he is a law unto himself. So, man, being created in the image of God, immediately he's created to be an ethical creature and he's immediately given a law to observe. You do this, you can eat all these trees, but if you eat of this tree, you will die. There's a punishment, there's a penalty. It turns it into a law. It's not a suggestion, it's a penalty. So man is an ethical creature and the idea of ethics and law are inescapable. Right and wrong are inescapable realities. Everybody understands that there is a standard by which they are accountable. Everybody understands that. We all understand that. that there is a standard, there is a pattern, that there is something by which we're accountable. For example, I think I have it here. Let me see. Okay, let me turn it back. C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. You should get that book. It's a really good book. 
I have it. I will not lend it. I've learned my lesson. Okay? So, Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis. The opening chapter, okay, begins this way. Okay? What interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them, he's talking about uh, when you go out and you look at people. Well, C.S. Lewis was, uh, he was, he was less of a theologian, more of a philosopher, but he was a Christian philosopher. So he's like, when you go outside and you hear people quarreling, right? He says, sometimes it sounds funny, sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kinds of things they say. So when you go out and you hear people arguing, listen to what they say. They say things like, how you like if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why would you shove in first? Give me a bit of, a, of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on, you promise. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. Children as well as grown-ups. Goes on to say, now what interests me about all these remarks is the man who makes them is not merely saying to the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. The other man seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out what he's been doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does, there is some special excuse. When you hear children get into argument, for somehow these three, four-year-old kids appeal to the same standard. That's not fair. That's my seat. What? Did he went to an ethics class, a university? Like, what is he doing, right? He knows, children know, for whatever reason, that there's, that's wrong. I was there first. You know the rules. <laughs> You're breaking the rule, right? Because man, by nature, is inescapable, is created to be an ethical creature. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Romans chapter 2, verse 14. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, and he's talking about the written code of Israel, right? Even though the Gentiles, the heathen in a jungle somewhere, they don't have the written code of Israel, but by nature, somehow they know the principles of this law. So, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ. Paul is making an account of how are the heathen who have never heard of Christ going to be judged. Well, they're going to be judged because these people know already by their own conscience right and wrong. So therefore, they are without excuse. Because by nature, the law of God is written on their hearts and their conscience bears witness to it. If you get on a plane and you go to the Amazon and you go to some Indian tribe that's never heard of the gospel, no Bible, no Jesus, no nothing, and you go over there and you see the Indian guy comes up to you and you steal his bow and arrow, he ain't going to have that. He ain't going to get mad at you. Right? You're going to say, hey, that's my bow and arrow, what you doing? Now, nobody went over there and was like, you know, there were no white missionaries who went over there and were like, listen, Indian man, somebody takes your stuff, 
you're supposed to do this, or you know, nobody did that. Like he knew already. You see this in all societies. Hypocrisy has never been a virtue, and then nobody built a statue. That man is a great hypocrite. Dude was the best hypocrite there was. Woke up every day. Just hypocrisy after hypocrisy. No. No. Why? Because by nature, man understands what's proper and what's wrong. It's a natural thing. This is the problem. Atheists cannot, there's no good answers for this. If you ever watch a debate from an atheist and you ask them, where does morality come from? You're going to get a runaround. They're going to tell you about, well, man, it's, you know, he's the most advanced. You know, we evolved higher than the other species, blah, blah, blah. And eventually you end up with something like, well, it depends on what society thinks in any given time. Well, there's a problem with that. Society thinks a lot of things a lot of time. Society used to sell black people in this country, right? You have a vote. You have a, back in 1850, you have a vote, you get a majority of people say slavery, fine, right? Was it fine? Of course not. Are we more enlightened today? No. We've always known by nature what is proper. Sinning is going against what you already know to be wrong. That's what sinning is. That's why there is no excuse, the Apostle Paul says to anybody, when God comes to judge, nobody's going to be able to say, well, I didn't know, or I, I, you know what people are going to say? I should have, I could have, I didn't. You have no excuse, right? Because we are ethical creatures, all right? So, the other observation that I have is, if knowing good and evil, or, or if law or right and wrong was something that we were made to be governed by, why did God prohibit the man to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Right? This is the tree of the knowledge of right or wrong, good and evil. The other question is, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil bad? Of course not. Everything that the Lord made was what? was good, right? The Lord saw that everything that he made was good. And everything that the Lord made is good. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not bad, all right? Turn to your neighbor, tell him. It was, no, nothing, can't even, no one. You don't have a neighbor. Sit next to her, please. She's your sister. Anyways, all right, so <laughs> the forbidden tree, everything that God made, he declared to be Good. So the tree was good, all right? Furthermore, God himself had knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, God says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So God says the man now is like us, knowing good and evil. This, I know good and evil. And God is good. So knowing good and evil... It's not bad. God is the one who placed the tree in the garden. So therefore, what is the sin that Adam committed? What was the problem of knowing good and evil? So, here's from Mark Rush Dooney, an article that he wrote. This is what he says. To understand the meaning of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we must first understand that God gave life to both Adam and Eve and gave them the prominent tree of life as a gracious gift. Moreover, God spoke to them 
apparently on a regular basis. Their understanding of good and evil could have come from two sources. They could have learned in faith from their gracious God and Creator, or they could disobey and seek their knowledge from the forbidden tree themselves. So, the sin of Adam was that Adam had two choices. He could live by grace through faith in their God, getting their understanding from Him as a source, because God spoke to them, right? Or rejecting that and living their own lives, deciding what is good and evil according to their own standard. They wanted to decide for themselves rather than putting their faith in God. In other words, they wanted to live and decide themselves what was good and evil. They wanted that knowledge from themselves rather than trusting God to get it. That was their sin. And furthermore, that is our sin today. The history of mankind is a history of men seeking to establish their own standard, fighting against the law of God that bear witness on their conscience. Okay? So, Romans 10, 2 and 3 says this, For I testify about them, this is Paul talking about the Pharisees, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were living by their own standard. They wanted to be like God, rather than trusting Him and living by His standard. So, practical implications. We're created to be in an ethical relationship with God, to live by grace through faith in Him, and to obtain from His voice all of our knowledge and understanding of what is proper. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God was speaking to them on a regular basis in the garden. They shut Him out, and they say, no, I will decide now. That was the sin. So, Hebrews chapter 5. Man should not live by bread alone. That's what I just said. By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here's Proverbs chapter 3. Here's our problem. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not what? Lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. This is, this is reverberating throughout the whole Bible. Do not lean on your own understanding, but trust what? Trust God, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're destroying speculation, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I mean, you, you filter everything through God's word and not of what you think should be right or wrong. That was their sin. That's our sin today. So, as believers, okay, as believers, as Christian people, what are the practical implications for us today? Number one, we are supposed to be trained to distinguish good and evil. That's what it means to be a mature Christian. Let's read the writer of Hebrews. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He's talking 
He's, this that's not very seeker friendly at all, by the way. You have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you should be teachers, okay, I've been with you for like 10 years, by this time you should be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. If I have to keep giving you baby food all the time for 10 years, and you're still not getting it, right? Then you're not a mature Christian. This is the word, I guess, of the writer of Hebrews to his audience. Then he says, um, For he is an infant, but solid, solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. A mature Christian is a discerner of what's right and what's wrong in all areas of life. That's a mature Christian. A mature Christian is not a guy who's praying every day and who's fasting every day and that's all he does. That's great, but he needs to get out of his house and go out into the world and be a discerner of good and evil, understand what's proper and what's right and what's wrong. That's a mature Christian. And he says, the opposite of that is the guy who's constantly getting the elementary principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. That's the immature Christian, because he doesn't know how to discern properly what's right and wrong. And there's people in churches that have been in church for 20 years, unfortunately. Apparently, it was so back then, <laughs> because he's telling you, listen, all this time, I've been with you. You're still babies. You're babies. You should be teachers by now. I shouldn't even be here. You should, I shouldn't even be writing you this letter. You should be teachers by now. So the true Christian is a discerner of what's right and what's wrong in all areas of life. What, what does that mean? You know, we're, we're constantly saying, you know, we, we need to bring God's word into all areas of life. God's law to all areas. We're always saying that. What does that mean? Okay, right? Well, give me an example. Here's a, here's a, a far-fetched example, okay? I got a sports illustration. It's, it, I suck at sports, okay? I don't play sports. I don't watch sports. I, I suck. I'm horrible. But for the sake of my audience, I'm trying to be seeker-friendly. Turn to your neighbor. Tell them. <laughs> when, my, when I was a kid, all right, my brother was a huge fan of Magic Johnson. Okay, this is, this is how far back I go, all right. Magic Johnson, you know Magic Johnson? You have no idea, you probably don't know. VHS, nobody knows. Anyways, when we grew up in Puerto Rico, we, had, we lived in a little subdivision, like, kind of like a subdivision type. So if you walked into our house, a little hallway, and my brother slept in this room, in his door, big poster of Magic right there, you walked into his room, he had a bigger poster of magic with, with, the, with the measuring. You guys remember that? With, you can stand next to it, you can, your height, and it'd be magic with the ball, that type of thing. He had upper, upper decks, Fleer, cars, and all that mess. So, he was such a big fan of magic that when magic retired, that was it. Like, no more NBA. <laughs> he retired along with magic, all right? 
He had the tapes of, uh, of the finals, what, 89, 87, 88, James Worthy, Kareem, Magic, all that mess. So if you ask, if you ask my brother, why do you like Magic so much? All these players. He, and I remember when I was a kid, I still remember this. He gave an example. He's like, if you see Magic, let's say he steals a ball. He's halfway down the court. Everybody's behind him, and there's a guy next to him, right? If you're Michael Jordan, what are you doing? Hoop, it's right there. It's just two points, bro. It's easy, right? What are you doing if you're Jordan? You're dunking it. Making that nice dunk, you're going to be an instant replay, play of the week. If you're LeBron, you're dunking that baby. You know what you did if you're Magic? There you go. Get yourself two points. Two points is two points, right? Team's still gonna get two points. What's Magic doing? He's passing it to the guy next to him. What's that? That's God's law. You, you can go ahead. You can go ahead and get yourself your two points. You can be the man. You can be the guy. You can be the highlight. Or you can pass it to the other guy. Maybe he's got six points. Now he'll have eight. Or maybe he has 10. Now he have 12. That's Magic. See? That was Magic. That's God's law. When you're the most popular kid in school, or you're on your team, and you're the life of the party, and everybody knows you, and you're the man, you know what you do? You go out of your way to talk to the nerdy person that nobody talks to and shuns. Why? Because you're going to lift them up. Why? Because that's what God does. That's God's law in every area of your life. You still be competitive. You should train every day to beat that opposite team and make sure that you all that you beat them every single time but if a situation happens right you can live for your own self-glory or you can live for the sake of your neighbor that's God's law even in a basketball game even in marriage God's law is this is how we bring God's law and his principles to all areas of our lives as Christians even in a game even if you're magic. That's what, that's what that means. So the mature Christian can discern properly what to do that is proper at whatever situation he is in in life. And that takes training. See what he says? They have what they have done, who because of practice, right, have their senses trained to discern good and evil, practice. That requires interaction all the time and keeping in mind to put into place the principle of God's law. That's what it takes. It takes stepping out and going out there and putting these things into practice. So, in fact, let's go to Proverbs 31. This is, this is my wife's passage. Proverbs 31. Let me, read, let me go through Proverbs 31. This is unplanned. Proverbs 31, verse 11. Let's go through it. This is the virtuous woman, the righteous woman, the whatever version of the Bible you have, woman. An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm or wrong all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands, 
She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night. Provides, she's a provider, food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and asks permission of her husband to see whether or not she could, no? Okay. She considers a field and buys it. What does that take? Discernment. She considers a field. That's a good field. Is that the proper pricing? Do I have the budget to buy that? Do I have the money? Can I, put it, can I get an investment out of this? What the return would be? So forth, so forth, so forth, so forth. Right? With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. This is, sounds like an entrepreneur so far. We got a provider, entrepreneur. She's just buying stuff with no permission. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy. She knows who's needy. She knows who's poor. And she reaches out with her hands. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothes with scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. This, this woman is amazing. Her husband is known in the gates. This is the one and only mention of her husband in the entire passage. Her husband is known in the gates. What does her husband do when he sits among the elders of the land? The elders, the gates, and the elders of the land were the people who make the decisions. They were governing people, right? So the husband is involved in the things and affairs of the world. In other words, he is discerning also what is good and right among the people who are the decision-making. So a husband should know what laws are proper. And why are we passing that regulation for that? Or why is this law? Or, or, or why this and that? That's what her husband is doing. He's out in the world bringing God's law into the world. Meanwhile, Wonder Woman, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants, strength and dignity of her clothing. She laughs at the future. That is the greatest verse in the Bible. She looks at the future. The heathen woman, the ungodly woman, the unbelieving woman is afraid of what's coming. She's always worrying. The virtuous woman looks at the future and she's like, whatever, bring it on. I got it. She laughs at the future. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. What a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. All of this involves what? Discerning. Right and wrong. She's trained to discern what's right and what's wrong, what, how to provide for her family, how to buy us a field and sell it, etc. This is the longest chapter on domestic life in the whole Bible, by the way. If you want to learn about domestic life and how should life be in a household, this is your longest portion of Scripture that deals with that. And also, some theologians believe that this could also, you know, there's a play in the Bible where, you know, Christ is called 
the bridegroom, and the church is called the bride. Sometimes God's people are called his wife. And some people also say that this can be applicable to the church. What is the church supposed to do? Discern what's right and wrong, provide for the needy and the poor, right? The church is supposed to um, discern what's right or wrong, to teach. The woman is a, this woman is a teacher. She teaches her children. The, the church is supposed to be a teacher also. This is also could be applicable to the description of the church involved in this world and the affairs of this world, changing, uh, bringing good things, discerning what's right and wrong, holding people accountable, etc., etc., etc. This is also is applicable to the church, who is the wife of who? Christ. So, being trained, we are created by God to be ethical people, to discern right or wrong. When we fell, that was aggravated. We began to live for all self-glory and making our own decisions based on what we think. If you look at things that happen in, in society, what is it? People, people deciding what's right or wrong out of their own ideas. That's all society is, right? We've decided marriage is this thing now. Just why? Well, whatever. We just, we just decided as society, marriage can be also this thing. That's man's decision, according to their own understandings. We've decided that, you know, women have a right. They have a right to abortion. That's their right. Why? Because we're people and we've decided that's the case. That's the sin of Adam that we're still doing. You can either do that or you can live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, which is His Scripture, which is His Word. We are to be a discerning people in all matters, even if you're playing for the Lakers and it's 89, and you're in the finals, and you're halfway down the court, you're going to pass it to whoever guy, because that's God's law. We're supposed to be a principled people. So, in the doctrine of man, God made you in His image, God made you to be a worker, to have dominion, and also to be ethical and discern what's right and wrong, and to be governed by God's law. This is how the humanity is supposed to be on this earth. We're supposed to discern good and evil, have dominion over all things, and be workers and, pro and productive people, and bringing in the kingdom of God. Man fell, all of that got aggravated, but Christ regained all of that back for us, and His people are now supposed to be putting this into place. So, as a church, like the writer of Hebrews says, we're supposed to not be babies with milk, but have solid food and practice our senses and train them to discern good and evil. The Christian is one who discerns good and evil and applies biblical law to all areas of life. This is how we're meant to live. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your, for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you that you, through your word and through your spirit, Lord, that you may be able to train us to discern what's right and wrong in this world, Lord, that you may give us the strength um, to be able to, even if it is against the, 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 
the current of this age that we may be able to stand for what is right and what is proper, Lord, and whatever it is that lines up with your word and your scriptures, Lord. We thank you, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.